0: This is the Real Estate Investing Abundance Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Allen. I just want to take a moment to introduce you to our company, Steed Tucker Capital. Steed Tucker Capital is a real estate investment firm. If you'd like to learn more about real estate investing, head over to our website, steedtucker.com. And while you're there, take a moment to get your one page guide to the 10 steps to Passive Real Estate Investing. Downloading this PDF will also enroll you in our Enlightened Investor Circle, and by enrolling in the Enlightened Investor Circle, you'll be the first to know about any new investment opportunities that we are getting involved with. Look forward to hearing from you. Enjoy today's show. Hello, enlightened investors. Welcome to Real Estate Investing Abundance. I'm your host, Dr. Allen. It is indeed a pleasure to be back with you again today. We're going to take a look at It's Not All About Deals, Doors, and Dollars, and how to do financial freedom for profit, and most importantly, for peace of mind. With us today is Terry Shower with 20 plus years experience as a real estate investor and property manager. Terry is the CEO and founder of My Room Property Management and Real Estate Consulting, a group based in Montreal, Canada. She is the leading authority on applying mindfulness principles to real estate investing and has written the number one best selling book on the topic Mindful Landlord. On her show, the Real Estate Investors Club podcast, Terry talks to investors about deals, doors, and dollars. So Terry, take us into the show and share a memorable experience that helped you to be who you are today.
1: Sure. So, you know, you first asked me that question off camera. I'm glad you prepared me for it because I had a couple of seconds to think about it while you were doing the intro. So I'm going to tell a story which was really kind of a pivotal point in my life. I am um, when I was 25, I was studying in Vancouver and um, I ended up at a kickboxing event and a female fighter came up onto the stage. And it had such an impact on me because at that point there really were not a lot of like women competing in that kind of sport. And I thought I'm going to do that. And then I went back home and looked myself in the mirror and realized I'm not the person who can do that right now. You know, I was dealing with some anxiety issues. I uh, was studying in a subject that I wasn't super into. I wasn't really aligned with the life path that I was on. I was kind of in an academic degree and that kind of no longer fit where I wanted to go. And so I realized that I had to do A major mental overhaul in order to become the person who was kind of worthy of that dream, and that's when I discovered uh, mindfulness as a way to align your mind for performance and to make sure that you know what you're doing in your life actually matches your deep internal motivations. And um, you know, I actually did go on to to box uh, semi-professionally in France, and and that was also the moment at which you know my life kind of took the real estate route as a full-time profession, as opposed to a sideline, which was what I'd been doing up
0: until then. Well, fascinating story. I think you're the first uh, female kickboxer I have ever met. Uh, (laughs) Maybe even the first kickboxer I've ever met. Definitely a different world than I live in, for sure. Terry, tell us what mental skills do we need to succeed in real estate investing?
1: Well, I would turn that back and say, what mental skills do you need to succeed at anything that you're not currently succeeding at? And for me, the methodology that I used is mindfulness, very simply. And that is understanding how your mind works so that you can get the most out of it. And, you know, if I can give you just like a really quick primer, my wood mindfulness is not, it's not positive affirmations. It's not mindset. It's really understanding how your consciousness operates. And so if we want to do that really quickly, there is the level of the thinking mind. So like in your head, there's this radio that's always talking, right? Your thoughts are continuously going. You can't stop them, but you don't have to identify with them. You don't have to be one with your thoughts at all times you then have your emotions, which I kind of use the analogy of the weather. So I can decide to go out for a jog and it can be snowing, it can be raining, it can be sunny. Those are my emotions. So I can choose to do something. I can be angry. I can be happy. I can be sad, but ultimately it's the actions that are going to produce the results, not the emotions that I'm experiencing. They do have a purpose, but they don't necessarily have to color the actions that we take. And then underneath that, and this is really what we work on, you know, in a mindfulness practice is pure presence. And so underneath the thoughts, underneath their emotions, there is this thing called the watcher, which is really you or me, or, you know, this, this kind of like deep presence that we have. And the more you work on mindfulness, the more you're able to identify with that presence. And so to get out of the spinning thoughts, to get out of being buffeted by your emotions and to really, you know, learn to be with that, you know, active pure presence. um, And that once you then do that, it kind of, Goes out into the rest of your life. And be it, you know, in the real estate field, or for me, like that came obviously like through combat sports, but then it becomes so valuable in whatever you choose to master, whatever you choose to devote yourself to, because it's just an incredible tool to make sure that your mind is helping you and not hindering you in what you're trying to do.
0: Well, fascinating. Terry, I like the way that you broke the complexities of mindfulness and consciousness down into a really practical and understanding perspective there. I also like how you referred, I think, several times to the word practice, and I'm interested and really fascinated with how you came to this process of mindfulness, and I'm sure it was through probably an Aho moment, it sounds like uh, that aha moment came when you went to the kickboxing event and and saw the woman and decided that that's what i want to do and went home and the aha moment really came when you realized that you at that point in time were not the person who could undertake that so from that aha moment to actually developing mindfulness can you chart that route how you came from that aha moment to really establishing Mindfulness as a practice in your life?
1: Well, you know, actually, I want it to be an aha moment, but if I'm really honest about what brought me to mindfulness, you know, I was having panic attacks and I had a Mm. phase of my life, which was around about the same time where, like, I had three months when, like, I didn't dare to leave the house. Like, that's how much I was struggling with anxiety. And um, it's not like I took it upon myself to, like, discover mindfulness. It's that I was looking for a way out of that sort of anxiety prison. And Mm -hmm. I went the, you know, the route that I think a lot of people do when they start having mental health issues, like, you know, I went to consult somebody, they tried to prescribe me drugs. And then I was like, No, I'm not going to take the antidepressant route. Like, how would somebody fix this if they were gonna fix it some other way. Mm -hmm. Um, So I bought myself a book, actually a great book called uh, anxiety, panic and phobias. And one of the recommendations in there was start meditating. So I was 25 years old. It was like kind of before meditation was cool. I'm like, okay, how am I going to do this? So, mm-hmm. you know, I set up my cushion and um, I don't even know Like the internet was a thing then, but like YouTube wasn't a thing. So like then I had to get a book, I got myself a timer and like, I started meditating. And then like, I realized that behind that book, there was this whole Buddhist literature that has kind of like the framework that the meditation sits on, right? Like meditation is a practice, but then there's this whole kind of, you know, spiritual and sort of mental framework on which that sits, which is mindfulness in a sense, it could also be, be Buddhism. And then I got really into that. Um, it also happened that I was uh, studying philosophy at the time. So I was able to take a, a, an Asian philosophy course, read the Dao De Ching, like understand a little bit more, you know, the tradition that that came out of. And then it was like a process, honestly, you know, between, a year and two years, like I saw the, you know, first benefits of meditating and beginning to like rework my mental Mm -hmm. framework within three months. Like it went, it was really fast. So I went from like being debilitated by panic attacks to, you know, understanding fear, understanding what tips you into panic. And like, it it was actually the progression was really amazing. Like once I, Mm -hmm. I kind of started practicing and like understanding the fear mechanism, because if you talk about mindfulness, it's a huge thing. And, you know, the human experience has so many emotions, so many different things. But because I was like specifically looking for a solution to fear and an overreactive fear response, mm-hmm. finding the answer to that really happened very quickly. And so you know, I was able to go go from being debilitated by it to being like, okay, this is not really an issue in my life anymore. To then going to the kickboxing event and being, you know, I used to be this person that was kind of hemmed in by my fears. And I I had dreams, but I didn't think they were possible for me. And then all mm-hmm. of a sudden this door opened and I'm like, wow, if I can beat this thing, I can, anything's possible for me. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, I sort of kept reading. I I came on to Dan Millman's uh, peaceful Way of the Peaceful Warrior, which was also a a big kind of moment for me when I read that book. He had an athletic background and kind of the main character applies mindfulness principles to you know an athletic career. And then I I went through this kind of transition of just reworking how my mind worked, basically.
0: Well, that really is quite amazing. In three months, the transformation, particularly given the fact that you were really on that journey Somewhat by yourself, you didn't really have, from what I understand here, you certainly didn't have a therapist that was helping you guide you through that. And I think we are are learning, at least in the field of psychology, we're learning that drugs are not particularly effective uh, in depression or anxiety and that they do work sometimes as long as people continue the drugs, but as soon as they discontinue them, the issues uh, reappear. And actually, there's been a number of of studies in comparison with the effects of drugs and depression and anxiety. And actually, placebos are as effective as the drugs. And yet, we still see them massively prescribed, which I think has to do with the power and influence of pharmaceuticals more than uh, the effectiveness of their drugs. And what we are finding is that certainly the individuals who actually do find their way out of anxiety and depression have been doing pretty much exactly what you are doing through uh, various different mindfulness techniques. They not only um, find relief from that momentarily, but it generally is a a lifetime, essentially a cure of those things. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciate you sharing uh, those things with us, Terry. It's really fascinating.
1: let me just, I because I, I kind of want to go back to, to two things you said, because I think it's worth, I think it's really worth underlining. And I think, you know, what I realized through a uh, part of that process is that I feel like our culture really has this tendency to medicalize mental malaise, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you can't, you know, be sad for two months without being depressed with a capital D. You can't, Have a panic attack or feel anxious without having an anxiety disorder. And, you know, when I think back to that phase of my life, like it really was not helpful to kind of, you know, have that label because it's then leads you to think of yourself as dysfunctional. And then that starts you on the path of like, okay, I need a therapist. I need drugs. As opposed to, no, like there's just something like I have bad mental habits. And like I think, you know, I don't have too much experience with depression. I'm not going to talk about something that I don't know about, but like anxiety, like, That's something that I know intimately. And like, yes, three months was pretty quick to get out of it. But like those results are available. Like I'm not some Mm. amazing thing, uh, amazing case that did something incredible. It's like if you really understand fear, you work on your anxiety, you use the best practices and you implement those things like those results are available. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really a question of doing the work. And I think, you know, part of the problem with looking for the medical solution is so first you get labeled with a disorder, then you go to the pharmacy, and then because you feel a bit better, you don't do the work that you need to do. And like, ultimately, sometimes I think for me, it was a bit of a a blessing to sort of, you know, go very far down that rabbit hole, be disabled by it, and then be like, no, I actually can't continue with my life, unless Mm -hmm. I address this. And I think you know, when I look at a lot of the people that I coach now, like, you know, they, they kind of have this low grade level of anxiety in their lives that Mm -hmm. just prevents them from being everything they can be. And like, you don't have to go to the extent of being debilitated by anxiety to have it just be this drag that's going to prevent you from getting to the life that you dream about. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I really, if I can kind of, give people like a call to arms on this. Like it's really, you can beat that demon. Um, Anxiety is one of the easiest mental disorders to overcome if you just use the right tools and, and, and change the way your mind is processing things.
0: Enlightened investors, if you haven't done so already, be sure and click that like button and also click that share so others can take advantage of the content. And finally, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single one of our upcoming episodes. Yes, I totally agree with you. And I guess I did say it's unusual that in three months, you turned that around. I mean, I think what was unusual about it is that you did it in really a fairly isolated uh, kind of state. You just didn't have the professional community backing you up on this, but in terms of it turning around in in three months, I, I I totally agree with you. That in itself is is not particularly unusual. What was unusual from your story is how you did it by yourself. Um, with the book, and well, obviously <laughs> and that's possible.
1: Myself,
0: but, yeah. <laughs> but it's uh, it you don't have to do it alone. I guess is what I'm saying. There today, there are sources and professionals out there who can mentor you and help you. And I believe that you are one of those sources. So tell our viewers and listeners about your coaching program and uh, how that works and how they can get in touch with you to take advantage of that.
1: Sure. So I really like, I have no claim to fame and no credentials in actual psychotherapy. So I think I'm just going to put that out there right away. I'm really like, you know, a real estate coach. And what, where people find me now, so I, you know, I've written the book called The Mindful Landlord. And what I do is I really try to bring You know, people's investment desires, their desire for financial freedom to meet these mindfulness principles, because very often people come with me, either they, you know, they own one property and they want to scale, or they know they want to buy their first property, but they're doing something to get in their own way. You know, they've got fear, they've got some like kind of limiting beliefs that are holding them back from either getting started or scaling and that's where I come in to kind of get them you know sometimes they just need a little kick they need to some more knowledge you know let's get better financial modeling let's uh, give them some help with finding deals or like optimizing deals whatever it is like so I'd say about 50 percent of it is actual real estate industry specific knowledge and then the other half is help with just getting out of your own way and um, like I would say 75 to 80 percent of the time it's fear because people are afraid of the unknown, they're afraid to take risks, they have, you know, some kind of limiting self beliefs, like for me, I really struggled with shyness, like after I dealt with my anxiety, I had this idea of myself as someone who like, couldn't network, who couldn't present myself professionally. Um, you know, I had a lot of like self esteem issues around that. And, you know, to be able to kind of reconfigure that also really helped me take the next step, because you can't, you know, without a proper network, you're going to run into trouble in real estate. You might be able to buy one property, but if you want to like turn it into something that you do professionally, you're going to have to learn to present yourself in that professional context as someone who knows what they're talking about and then build a network. And, you know, for me, who was like socially not super comfortable at that phase of my life, like it was a real struggle to do that. So that's something else that I I help people with is just to sort of get out of their own way, feel more comfortable with the network building and you know, if I can say something about that, like it, there's also like a science to that, right? Like there's a science to overcoming fear and there's a science to building your network. And if you approach networking as like a popularity contest, you know, I'm a bit of an introvert. And when I used to go to events and see like the extroverts were out there like making mm-hmm. connections, talking to everybody, like kind of the cool kid at the high school dance, and like I would walk away from there like with my shoulders slumped, feeling like I failed. Um, mm-hmm. But it's because I was doing it wrong. And I think if you understand, you know, the science of mutually profitable business relationships, it doesn't become a high school dance thing where, you know, you have to ask the hawk girl to dance with you or the hawk guy to dance with you. It's just like, no, I when I talk to people, I want to see, can I help you? Is there someone I can connect you with that's going to it's going to be profitable for you and then i want to learn also is there someone you can connect me with that's going to be helpful for me and if you really engage in that kind of conversation people open up and they actually will remember you cuz like yeah terry asked me questions she wants to know like what's my business about like how can i help you who do i know that you should meet to further what you're trying to do and when people see that level of interest like your business card or your like little mental spot is going to move to the top of the of the pile just because you actually took an interest as opposed to like being the social butterfly that's trying to talk to 15 people at an event no make two connections with someone that you're actually going to talk to afterwards and and it's going to be much more effective
0: so. Yeah, I like the fact that you mentioned the aspect of the introvert. Certainly in the United States, I suspect in Canada too as well. North America is really, as a nation, we're really an extroverted uh, nations. And because of that, I think introverts have a difficult time finding their place in our society. And the gifts of introversion are minimized. And there are so many, 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 many things that introverts can bring to the table that extroverts Typically, just naturally don't have. I mean, extroverts can develop those skills as well, but introverts come, I think, with a much more innate and natural uh, approach to really developing close and intimate relationships that uh, extroverts, I think, sometimes lack. And uh, I like how your coaching helps, particularly introverts, to realize their gifts and then also to be able to work on those gifts and enhance those gifts. So real estate coaching is often about bigger and better is bigger and better, always better
1: no <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think that's also something that I discovered once I started having some success in the real estate field is that it's very easy to get caught up in the competitiveness of it, right like if you go to events. What's the first thing people are saying? What's the size of your portfolio? How many doors do you own? And that then really becomes the metric by which people assess their own performance, right? And, you know, I was actually just on a coaching call yesterday with um, somebody who was having specifically that conversation. He's like, you know, I felt like I'm at this event. I feel like I'm, you know, wasting people's time with my small number of doors. And like, and I, I feel like I don't really belong here. You know, you get a little bit of imposter syndrome. And the way to deal with that, is to just get very real about what your own goals are in real estate as opposed to being kind of like this satellite antenna for what everybody else is doing. And like, you know, I can give you a little bit of a, uh, from, you know, my personal history, like I attained financial freedom with nine doors. So I had three triplexes. Um I at the time rented them, you know, as a like furnished before that was cool. And that basically was enough money to then go on and purchase my single family home and like take care of my family's finances. So you don't need to have a portfolio of 200 doors to hit your objectives in real estate, right? Like, you know, after that, I, I, I became interested just in growing the portfolio kind of as a, something that I wanted to do because this is now my profession. But in terms of someone who just wants to cultivate financial freedom, like you don't need to be the person who has a $20 million portfolio and a thousand doors to your name. You need to, what's your number? What do you want? And then figure out how much is it going to take to get there? What do I have to do to get there? And the more you remain within your own goals and aligned to your own things, you're not going to find yourself making sacrifices that are to try to get to someone else's end point. You know, and and for me, that's something I went through, like my, my son is now six, but when he was uh, very small- Like I kind of got caught up in this competitive thing. You know, I discovered I built my network, like professionally things were doing well. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to make so much money. And then like, I realized this is actually not what I want. Like, I don't want to be one of those people who has a thousand doors and spends 80 hour weeks building my real estate thing. I want to work 30 hour weeks and I want to be home and I want to have time to pursue my own interests and be there for the family. And that then that then allows me to, you know, not have imposter syndrome, when uh, I walk into a room full of people who are maybe, you know, playing the game at a higher level than I am. So I think that's really important. And, and not to disparage it, right? Like not to disparage people who are pushing the envelope, because I think that that's important in terms of what inspires us, you know, and like, my analogy is always a sports analogy, like some people are going to compete at a world class level, some people are going to Just go to the gym every day and enjoy what they're doing. And is it somehow not worthwhile to just be, you know, a gym enthusiast? No, it's going to make you healthier. It's going to make you happier. You're going to get all kinds of positive things out of it. And you don't need to feel like you have to be a world class athlete for that to have a place in your life. So I think like real estate's the same thing. You don't have to own a thousand doors to call yourself a real estate investor. You're a real estate investor with one door. (laughs) So.
0: Well, Terry, it has just been a delight for me to have you with us today. You just have so much to offer, and I'm so glad that you were with us. And I know our audience appreciates it as well. So thank you for being with us, Terry. Thanks, Dr. Allen. Enlightened investors, don't go yet. I have just a couple of quick requests. You know the drill. Like, share, and subscribe. But we also need your help to build our audience, so please go to your favorite podcast app and leave us a five-star rating and review. I'll be most grateful. Until next time, prosper and live abundantly. Thank you for tuning in to Real Estate Investing Abundance, brought to you by Steve Talker Capital, a company working for passionate professionals like you to develop financial
1: independence built on solid, passive real estate investments.